I would argue that discipline is the means of grace by which the Christian battles the flesh and at the same time integrates the characteristics of godliness in his life. This is The Bible Sojourner, where we discuss issues related to the Bible, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Shalom and welcome. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to another episode of The Bible Sojourner. One of the things that we often do is we talk about some of the lesser discussed topics which relate to the Bible or theology, and that's a lot of fun, and I appreciate all of the feedback I've gotten. In fact, one individual said this is the weird stuff that we get to talk about. We need to have somebody who talks about that. So I take that as a compliment in many ways, so thank you. But we also want to talk about things that are more generally helpful, but perhaps from a fresh perspective. And that's what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to talk about something that I would rate as probably the most life-changing topic I've ever studied from the Bible. And I still remember the first time that I was introduced to it. And that's the idea of self-control and self-discipline and that they're essential parts to the Christian life. I was actually a junior in college and I'd never heard anyone preach on or teach on self-discipline before. And a godly individual by the name of Alex Strock, who's still alive, and we have the privilege of hosting him at the Shepherds 360 conference periodically, and that's just a true blessing. But this is the first time I was ever introduced to him, and I never forgot that day. He preached on self-discipline and why it was so important. And he opened up with a quote from the prestigious Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it says this, I think you might find it helpful. So, quote, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. Obviously, it is something that is thoroughly scriptural and absolutely essential. Well, that gets your attention, right? That's a pretty hot quote. And is it true that all the men and women of God who have accomplished great things, they are marked by this self-discipline, by this order? And I think it is true. But regardless, I think we can easily see that self-discipline and self-control are absolutely essential characteristics for the Christian. And that's what we're going to try to do today is we're going to talk about it biblically, why it's so essential and maybe even give some helpful tips as to how that's going to happen. So I don't think I need to convince you that the modern Christian is in desperate need for self-discipline. I think you just look around and you see the problems, right? In fact, the same year I heard Alex Strock preach on self-discipline and really became convicted in my own life about how important it was to pursue this, that was the same year I first read Kent Hughes' book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, and many of you are familiar with that book. And in that book, he mentioned, and now this study was dated, but in the book, he mentioned a study done by a magazine, I think it was Leadership Magazine, and he talked about numbers that were mind-blowing to me, how 12% of pastors had engaged in adultery in the ministry, and it was something like 23% of all Christians had claimed 
Oh, that was pastors. 23% of pastors had also claimed to do something inappropriate with the other sex, even if it wasn't adultery. They, they thought it was inappropriate, whatever they had done. And then Christianity Today also just surveyed, you know, not just pastors, but regular Christians and found that 23% engaged in adultery. So of professing Christians, you have like a quarter of them saying, okay, we engaged in adultery. And then almost half, 45%, saying they've done something sexually inappropriate. Now, you can imagine how, and those were pre-internet, essentially. I mean, very very beginning parts of the internet. You have internet, now you have pornography, all these things. And we just know and we would expect that these, these sad numbers would increase where Christians are regularly doing things that they would think of as inappropriate with the other sex or even just looking at pornography online. Self-discipline and self-control become all the more important. In fact, with the advent of smartphones and social media, one of the things that I quickly found is that with all of the studies that are coming out with people using social media, you have the younger generations just astronomically using social media time-wise beyond that of others. Uh, just a few years ago, years ago, it was 18 through 24-year-olds that were using social media in excess of three hours a day. So just pragmatically, we can see the need for self-discipline. But, but okay, even beyond that, I think maybe that helps get your attention, right? I think uh, you understand that this is, this is a need. But even beyond that, just biblically, is discipline important for the Christian? And I would say it is. And not just that, it's not just, oh, we should do this because it makes us more profitable or productive or like the world and we can become CEOs. No, I would argue that discipline is the means of grace by which the Christian battles the flesh and at the same time integrates the characteristics of godliness in his life, right? So when we think of that, Discipline being the means of grace by which God not just helps us resist the flesh, but also implements godliness in our own life. It seems like this would be a very important characteristic to pursue. And I would say that when you look at scripture, you see this all over. And I don't know, maybe it's just because living in a North American context, I just didn't hear it as much growing up in the church. Um, I, I did see it modeled in, in individuals like uh, my parents and, and others, and I was thankful for that. But at the same time, I never really received a lot of teaching on this. And so when I started studying it, I was blown away uh, just seeing all that scripture talked about it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to, I guess I'm going to organize it this way. I'm going to give you four reasons to practice self-discipline, just showing you why the Bible talks about it. And then I'm going to give you some tips. And it's not because I have a handle on all this, but it's just because I'm right in the trenches, knowing that this is something we ought to pursue. And these are some helpful tips for that. And it works because we are in the new year and everybody's thinking, oh, how can I be you know, a better Christian? How can I set my sights on pleasing the Lord better? And I think this is a great way to do that. Okay. So four reasons to practice self-discipline. First, self-discipline is a core command within the church. Okay. So it's not just something that's mentioned periodically, but it's actually a core essential part of what discipleship looks like. And the easiest way to see that is just go to Titus 2. And in Titus 2, 
which is basically a part of Paul's instructions to Titus on how to train the church, what they ought to be focused on. He's, he's giving them insight into what the life of the church ought to look like, how they're supposed to teach one another. And so he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is Titus 2.1. And then he addresses four groups, right? Older men, he addresses older women, he addresses younger women and younger men. So he's got four groups and then he addresses those who are uh, slaves of their masters and well, gives them, gives them instruction. So when he talks about these four groups in the church, one of the things we need to understand is that out of all of the characteristics that are given, every group is told that they need to be self-controlled. Okay, like look at verse 2 in Titus 2.2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So you have... Paul telling Titus, listen, one of the things that needs to mark believers, older men who are setting the standard for the younger men and the church as a whole, they need to be marked by this dignified, sober-mindedness, but also they need to be marked by self-control because they're helping uh, be examples for the fellow believers. You say, okay, that makes sense, but what, what else? Look at the older women and younger women. The older women are to be uh, reverent in behavior, not slanderers, nor slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And then look at verse four in Titus two, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Notice that to be self-controlled, that's something that the older women are modeling and teaching the younger women to implement in their lives, right? And then unsurprisingly in the instruction to the young men in verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. And that's all. That's super interesting to me because I I imagine many a young man is, is always raring to go and think, okay, give me, give me everything that you can. I want to really implement all these, all these items. And Paul says, yeah, work on being self-controlled. That's what you need. And I think that's so helpful. And I know, um, you know, I was checking the the statistics at the end of the year for uh, those of you who are listening on Spotify, uh, you know, welcome. Uh, Spotify is tracking you all and they're telling me, okay, the age demographics, you have this many listeners of men, this, this many listeners of women, et cetera. And the majority of people who listen to the podcast are actually young men. And if you're an older man, I still include you in young man category. Okay. We're just going to throw that in there. But uh, you think about uh, the young men who are trying to learn and grow. Well, let me tell you, if we, if we had a sit down with the Apostle Paul, according to Titus 2, he's saying, this is one thing you need to really prioritize, is learn how to be self-controlled. That's, and that's the period for young men. Now, he goes on in verse 7 and talks about instruction to Titus and how how he should implement some godly characteristics. And we could presume that those would be modeled to other younger men as well, of course. But really for instruction to the younger men, this is, this is the essential part. So throughout these groups, you're thinking, okay, we are being instructed to be self-controlled. Uh, this, is, uh, this is something that's very, very essential to the Apostle Paul here. And uh, just in case somebody, somebody felt left out and they're saying, well, you know, maybe... Maybe I'm not a younger woman, older woman, older man, or younger man. Well, you fit into one of those categories. But just in case, 
when when you're talking about okay everybody in verses 11 and 12 he says for the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people so he's talking about all people here and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age so in other words he's saying listen the grace of god that has come into this life that's come into this world for us it it, it has the effect and it has the purpose of training us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled lives and that's that's a big part of the the freedom that we have in the gospel uh, unbelievers are trapped and ensnared in their sins they they don't have a choice they are dead in their sins they they are they are captured by sin and believers have been freed from that uh, romans 5 through 8 is very very clear that believers have been uh, indwelled with the spirit and ha- have a newness of life about them and they are freed from that that burden of sin and so they can choose to walk in that newness of life and this is a part of that living a self-controlled life right and and i i love the the application here when you think about how discipline is talked about how self-control is talked about in titus 2 it's it's an everyday life kind of thing this is something that you know no matter who you are if you're a younger man you're supposed to be doing it no matter who you are if you're a younger woman you're supposed to be doing it no matter who you are if you are a older man older women you're supposed to be self-controlled so you know it's funny I remember thinking about this, remember when I when I first was hit in the face, you know, at Mach 17 speed, and I realized, whoa, this is really important. I remember thinking to myself, would somebody say that I'm a self-disciplined individual? Would somebody say that I'm a dis- that I'm a self-controlled individual? And I didn't think anybody would. Uh, and I was convicted over that because if this is what we're supposed to be known as for believers. This seems to be something that we ought to prioritize a little more highly. So it's a core command in the church. And we see this other places as well. In fact, 1 Peter 4, uh, I, I love how, you know, you think a lot of times people are talking about eschatology and what's going to happen and all those things, but they miss some of the most basic realities. And that's so unfortunate. But, the, but Peter really, you know, puts it up front for us in super bold print here. And he says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, so when you think about this, I mean, we are at an eschatological precipice. We are, we are here at the end. And what should we do then? Okay, Peter, you got my attention. What do you say? Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Wow. Like, so, okay, you, you, ever, you ever think, okay, what is the, what is the point of recognizing that we are in the last stages of God's plan before he comes back. We are in the last days, as, as it were. And you know, the New Testament makes that clear. And so when we, think of, when we think of this idea, what should that prompt in our life? Be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And I think that that's just so simple, but, and it's practical. But a lot of times people wonder how they should live. They say, okay, well, how should I live if, if I really do believe that Jesus could come back anytime? Here you go. Live a self-controlled, disciplined life. That's what he's saying. 
Now you even think about now there's other places that we could go. I have so many on my mind that I'd like to walk us through, but just for sake of time, one of the most impactful passages I can think of would be something like 2 Timothy 2. Because in 2 Timothy 2, you have the the threefold illustration Paul gives there of the Christian life. So you have the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. You remember that text in 2 Timothy 2? And when he says, you know, this is what your life should look like uh, as a good soldier for the master, uh, work as an athlete, you know, uh, prepare and work hard as a farmer. He gives those pictures of, of discipline, of hard work, of effort. And you read that and, you know, you say, wow, that's, that's nitty gritty stuff. That's, that's difficult. And there's no indication in scripture that you should expect an easy life as a Christian. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When, pe- when Jesus himself talks about people following him, he gives the highest standard possible. He says, take up your cross and follow me, right? So when we think of these things, this is, this is really important, is that self-discipline is a core command in the church. It's, it's a command that Jesus himself implements. The disciples are regularly proponents of this, saying self-discipline, self-control is, is a part of walking walking faithfully with the Lord. This is a core command. You need to, you need to implement this. And so we ought to prioritize it. And again, I I just think of, it's a shame that I never, I never really uh, thought about it. Maybe I was just not paying attention during, during my upbringing. That's entirely possible, but I would say this is something we ought to emphasize a lot more in, in our churches and in our groups and Lord willing, we can do that. So that's first one is it's a, it's a core command for the church and something we ought to be marked by. But in line with that, this would be the second main point is that self-discipline is also from the spirit. And it's a core command, something we're supposed to pursue, but it's also something the spirit rots in our life. That's old fashioned English there for you. It's something that the spirit helps us with, that it comes from the spirit itself. And you can see that in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 with the fruits of the spirit, right? Uh, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, I don't know why, but for, for so many years, I guess I had that verse memorized, but I just never put two and two together. And I never thought about self-control being a part of a spirit indwelt life. And I, I would just challenge you that this, this ought to be uh, a priority. Uh, be, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we need to be loving. Oh, we need to be patient with people. Oh, we need to be kind. Yeah, that's true. But look, the scriptures are also talking about the need to be self-controlled. And I just think that, you know, we, we so often minimize that. And part of the reason for that, I'm, I'm going down a rabbit trail here a little bit, but I think that this is important. Part of the reason we minimize self-control is because oftentimes we put too much, and this is going to sound heretical, just bear with me here. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on the grace of God. And what I mean by that is we talk about you know being saved by grace and Jesus Christ has done it all, et cetera. Amen and amen. Listen, we do not save ourselves by doing any works, Okay. It's only through faith and the grace of our Lord Jesus operating through the exercise of faith that we are saved, okay? 
But listen, you can't read the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. I kind of skipped over all the Old Testament has. Maybe we'll come back to some of that. But when you think about discipline, it's everywhere, right? And self-control. And this is something that we're to be pursuing, right? And it's not for salvation, but we're pursuing it because it's the right thing to do. And there are movements out there that I just think are so counterproductive to godly Christian living, which say, oh, just focus more on the grace of the Lord, or just just focus more on, on what Christ has done, and that's how you know we're to live our life or whatever. Okay, I don't see that in Scripture. In fact, I see the exact opposite. I see, you know, Titus 2, I see 1 Peter 4. I just think this is so practical yet important and a counterbalance to what we're often told in some of these hyper-grace cultures where, you know, just focus on the grace of the Lord, grace of the Lord, et cetera. I'll give you an easy example of that. One time I was talking to a young man about his struggle with pornography, and I just asked him what his plan was to beat it. I said, you know, you're really struggling with this. Do you have any plan or do you have any way on how you plan on, you know, overcoming this? Like, what is your plan? Because if you don't have a plan, you're going to plan to fail. And he said, well, I just need to focus more on um, what Jesus has done and just focus on how he forgives me no matter what. And that'll help me live a better life. That'll help, that'll help me overcome it. And I just remember thinking, wow, you are, you're actually bound for disaster if you, if you think that not changing your life at all or pursuing discipline or control is going to uh, have any effect outside of that. And so I tried to walk, walk with him what it would look like to die to self, to, uh, as Jesus says, you know, to uh, pluck out your eye, metaphorically, you just take radical steps of discipline to guard yourself from temptation, et cetera. And he said, no, that's, that's legalistic. And I tried to explain him that it was Jesus who had taught that, not me, but he did not like that. And so in any case, I just think that this is really important to understand is that discipline isn't just something that comes from yourself. And, you know, this isn't the, the hyperproductive American five steps to, you know, the better you or whatever. This is something that comes from the spirit and it's something that we work hand in hand. You know, it's the Philippians two concept. Um, you pers- you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That's our responsibility, our 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 impetus to work for the Lord. But then it's God that works in you, right? And so this is very very important. So self discipline is from the Spirit. Now the third thing, which is really important as well, is that self discipline scripturally is described as the means of godliness. Okay, so. I think maybe one of the best texts for that would be 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, where he's Paul writing to Timothy now, one of his other pastoral apprentices, says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I would say in looking through that passage, it's just very obvious. Paul instructs Timothy, and again, going back to what we were saying, he, he doesn't say, just focus on the fact that Jesus died on the cross. No, he says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. This is something that ought to mark us, is, is we are intentionally and importantly, we're prioritizing this to train ourselves for godliness, right? There's, there's an athletic quality to it. And I I use that illustration a lot, and I grew up doing a lot of athletics. I loved it, thought maybe I would do it for the rest of my life. 
And one of the things that quickly became evident is that the people who are successful in athletics, no matter what sport it is, except for maybe like curling or something, maybe curling, there could be an exception here. But I think in most sports, the, the best athletes are the ones who train, even if they don't feel like it. Right. And so it's not as if you have some of the best athletes ever, like Tom Brady, I'm using his example because he played you know, winning Super Bowls well into his 40s, you're like, okay, that's crazy. As a football player, that's that's just crazy. And but his training regime was a regime. Regimen was the word I was looking for, but I guess it could be a regime as well. And anyway, he his training regimen was was phenomenal. Uh just the talk of the town, as it were, uh, how he disciplined himself and how he ate, how he slept, how he practiced, all those things, right? And he was able to play a lot. And that's Paul's point. Even if you look at, you know, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, talks about athletes being controlled in all things. Uh, This is, if you think about how the New Testament talks about this, Paul especially is very fond of using the athletic metaphor. Uh, And the big part of the athletic metaphor is discipline, right? So Paul is keying in on this concept that, you know, it's not all uh, fairy tales, bells, whistles, fireworks kind of idea in the Christian life. There's some really nitty gritty aspects where we have to be self-controlled and disciplined. That's that's very important. And so th- I just think that that's really important to understand is that the New Testament describes this process of self-discipline and self-control as the means by which we implement godliness. And it's, you know, if someone were to ask me, how am I going to grow in godliness? I could say, well, read your Bible. And it would be like, well, how am I going to read my Bible? I don't always feel like it. I mean, I don't care what you feel like. Just read your Bible, right? I mean, that's not a prerequisite to reading your Bible to say, I need to feel like it today. Um, a lot of people feel bad trying to do things when they don't feel like it. They say, oh, I don't want to pray because I just don't feel like it. Or I don't want to read my Bible because I don't feel like it. There, Yeah, in the in the Bible, there is nothing, nothing about saying, oh, make sure you feel like praying before you pray. Or make sure you feel like reading your Bible before you read your Bible. Okay, obviously not. Uh, so those are the three reasons. For the fourth reason would be that self-discipline is a means by which we retain ministry privileges. So again, if we're talking about why we ought to practice self-discipline, it's because discipline is actually one of the means by which we protect our opportunity and abilities to do ministry. And that doesn't just mean if you're if you're a pastor, but especially if you're a pastor and elder. But even if you're just a a lay level saint, a man or a woman who's just very involved in church life, loves serving. Listen, discipline is is how you guard ministry, right? And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 through 27. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And notice his his concern there is that he doesn't want to tell somebody how they should live or or how the gospel impacts their lives and then have that be shown powerless right and i think that that's that's important i think when when paul is is giving us as that pattern that ought to be very important in our own lives and unfortunately we probably all know different pastors or elders who who have taught or preached or done any kind of interaction with the body of believers. And at the end of the day, they 
yeah, at the end of the day, they disqualify themselves through some uh, gross immorality or something like that. Let's say, let's say they committed adultery, uh, and and yet they had preached a sermon on sexual purity or the need to follow Christ and forsake the the lust of the flesh. Well, that's that's disingenuous, right? That that disqualifies everything that they're trying to stand for. And and so too, if you if you go to counsel a fellow brother and sister, and you say, well, hey, I think that you really need to prioritize. Uh, being honest in this situation and not cheating, but then it turns out you're cheating on your taxes. Yeah, good luck. You you disqualify yourself. Nobody's going to listen to you, and that's that's a part of ministry protection uh, on every level is being self-disciplined, self-controlled, protecting yourself. Uh, and it's not just a pragmatic thing. This is just a part of of life in the Christian sphere, right? This is just obvious. So I think there are. Four important reasons there. Just uh, th- there are others too, I'm sure, but I just think those are easy to to maintain. You have self discipline is a core command in the church, absolutely. It's a fruit of the spirit, yes, and it's the means of godliness in many passages. It, it shows that it's kind of the funnel. In fact, I didn't mention this, but many people have noted that in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five twenty two and twenty three, because self discipline is listed last. They say, well, why, why is it listed last in the order? And many commentators, and I, I think that this makes sense to me, would say that it's listed last because that is kind of the funnel or the means by which the other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are employed. And you, you just think about it. How do you love somebody? Or how do you exercise kindness or patience towards somebody if you don't want to? Well, you need to exercise control self-discipline, self-control, control your emotions, and you just buckle down and do it. That's how we, we're teaching our kids that. You know, Sometimes they'll say, I don't want to, and I, I give them a profound answer. I say, I don't care. You know, it's like, oh, you're so mean. Yeah, well, I am kind of sometimes. But when I, I'm just trying to teach them that it doesn't matter how you feel, what matters is what's doing right. And that's usually what I tell them. I, I'm kind of being facetious a little bit, but what I usually try to explain to them is that it doesn't matter how you feel, it matters what's right. And that's what discipline is, ultimately. At the core, what self-discipline is, and this is something that Strzok said in that sermon, it stuck with me all those years. So if you're a preacher or you teach, just know sometimes things just hit in a special way and they stay there. And one of the things that Strzok said is that self-discipline is basically just doing what you need to do when you don't want to do it. That's that's a good way of marking discipline. And so it's a means of godliness. And, and lastly, it's a means by which we retain ministry privilege. And so I think those are four really healthy ways for why we would pursue discipline. So now I want to go through just practically, you know, if someone were to come to me and ask, okay, I'm convinced that self-discipline and self-control are essential. In fact, I do want to at this point just uh, take a take a jump back, just because I, I we went through this in in our family devotions the other day, and I just want to I just want to point out even what Proverbs has to say about this, because Proverbs is you know very important, and Proverbs sixteen thirty two, and there are other passages as well, but this one always stays with me. Okay, so Proverbs sixteen thirty two, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Okay. Now, what he's saying there is, listen, 
those people in the ancient world who could conquer cities, they are the mighty warriors, right? But you're better than you're better than all of those if you can just rule your spirit, if you can control your spirit. And so I would I would just implore you to even as the wisdom of Solomon has implemented here as Paul has told us as Peter has told us just really try to prioritize this become convinced that it's a priority and then take steps to make it implemented in your life okay so how can you grow in self discipline how can you grow in self control i think this is again a, a just a practical walk right i think there are steps that you can take to grow in self discipline to grow in self control and i don't i'm not sure there's anything unique here that I can add other than a compilation of, you remember when I became convinced that this is an area that I needed to grow in my life, I started to read all sorts of books on this. And so I've kind of compiled a list of things. I'm not sure where all of them have come from, right? I do know a lot of it comes from Alex Strzok because I took copious notes on that. I listened to that sermon multiple times and just saying, you know what, I really need to, to implement a lot of these things. I know MacArthur had preached some sermons on self-discipline and self-control, and I'm sure I've listened to countless other ones, right? So a lot of this list, I hope, is just a compiled list of very practical elements that I've gleaned from others, okay? So that's also a nice thing because you don't have to say, oh, this is just Peter's list. No, this is a list that's compiled from, from many men who have aged and practiced discipline well before me. And I would, I would just say this too. The, some of the things I'm going to say are very, very practical. Uh, and you're saying, well, that just seems too easy or, or just too simple, or it's, it's doesn't have the aha or the pizzazz to it. And I say, that's, that's the non-glamorous Christian walk. And that's kind of what I, what I talked about earlier is that the Christian life is often compared to an athlete and the athlete has their glamorous, you know, race, you know, their, their Olympic moment. They, they, they race for like two minutes. Well, it depends on what race they're running or swimming or whatever. They, they just have their moment in the sun and then they're on the podium. But nobody sees the years and years of just arduous training that goes into that. In fact, I was telling one of my uh, favorite athletes that I ever saw growing up was Michael Phelps. And the reason was because I was a swimmer. I saw Michael Phelps swimming. And I was, I was always blown away. Part of it was because I knew what he had to go through to get to where he was and, you know, winning eight gold medals in one Olympics, just phenomenal, phenomenal. And I, I just think people a lot of times don't realize just how good that was, but a little, little known story about Michael Phelps's uh, climb to fame and his swimming prowess was he lost a race very early on to a, a younger swimmer that well, I guess this swimmer was a little older than, than Phelps, but they were both young. And a lot of people don't know his name, but his name was Ian Crocker, and they were both butterflyers at that time. And Ian Crocker outtouched Michael Phelps, um, got the world record. Michael Phelps got second or whatever at uh, one of the world championships. And so what Michael Phelps did was for the next year, he got a life-size poster of Ian Crocker and put it on his, the ceiling of his bedroom. And so every time, and, and for swimmers, you know, you're regularly getting up at like four 30 or five in the morning to go practice, to hit early morning practices. Then you go through your day. Sometimes you have afternoon practice and then evening practice as, as well, if not just morning and evening practice. 
And so it can get very difficult to wake up sometimes in the morning. And so that was how Phelps motivated himself. He just looked at the, at the ceiling and was like, okay, Crocker beat me last year. He's not going to beat me this year. And so he would just get up every, every morning and uh, do what he had to do. And I thought that was so funny because he's, you know, it's just like, you know, we often think about is the, the perishable crown is very attractive to the athlete, right? But we as Christians, should we not understand that the imperishable reward, the imperishable crown is all the more important for us? I mean, of course, that's, that's how we ought to process these things, but it's a non-glamorous thing. You know, it's, the, it's as one of my professors used to say, it's the glory of the grind. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's just day in, day out, plodding along and grinding forward. And so these, these principles, or I guess these ways to grow in self-discipline aren't, you know, going to be something that if you did it, people are like, oh, you are so smart. They're just common sense things. Okay. But I think they're so important and, and they're really helpful to orient our minds, especially every year. You know, I, I love, I love the new year because I personally actually do take it seriously. Some people are different, but I do try to reevaluate and say, is my life pleasing to the Lord? And is there anything I can change? And so these are some of the things I think through. So the first thing, uh, a way that I think people need to pursue self-discipline is to pray for it. Okay. To pray for it. And a lot of times people don't start there, but let me tell you something. Self-discipline is something that not only Jesus commands us to pursue, but it's a fruit of the spirit. And so if you pray for it and ask God to give you self-discipline and to give you self-control, is that something that God will answer? Yes. If we ask anything according to his name, he will hear us. He'll give that to us because this is God's will that we pursue self-discipline. So you pray, you start there, ask God to help you be more self-disciplined. And one of the best things about that is as you pray, in one sense, it becomes self-fulfilling because you're praying about it. So you're thinking about it. And then, so you find ways to be self-disciplined. It's, uh, it's actually really cool. And so I would definitely say, start there, start with praying for self-discipline. Okay. Number two would be start with small things again, very, very practical. And it's the absolute worst, especially at the start of a year for people to start with high goals or super lofty, unattainable goals. You know, some people go from never reading their Bible the previous year to saying, I'm going to read my Bible in 10 days this, this year. Um, okay, let's start with a little more manageable, you know, and I, I think that it's, it's the, it's the death of many a well-intentioned individual to try to set a goal that's just way too high. They're not strong enough. I mean, just think about it. It's like anything. If you were to go in and try to you know, bench press 350 pounds or something like that. You're, you don't just go in there and say, okay, I'm going to start off with 350 pounds and I'm just going to keep trying to lift it until I finally can lift it. No, you start out small. You start out with 15 pounds because you haven't done anything in a while and you're going to die, you know, if you try 350 pounds. So that's the point. And so if you want to be disciplined, set small goals, uh, clean up your room, make your bed, uh, clean out your car. Uh, make sure the dishes are always done. You know, you're not going to be able to climb a mountain without training on some hills, right? And so once you discipline yourself and condition yourself to saying, you know what, I am going to be a disciplined person. And that shows up in how I treat my desk and my office and my, my bedroom and all those things. It's just going to keep working into other areas of life. 
And so I'd say start with small things. Don't start with things that are unattainable. Third, become organized. And this is kind of obvious, but the more organized a believer is, the more he or she can handle, right? Uh, Oftentimes, and and I convict myself here, uh, especially in the past, I I would agree to something and then I would forget because I didn't write it down. I didn't um, have a way of cataloging what I was supposed to be doing. Can't tell you how many hours I wasted uh, knowing I had to get something done and then not being able to find a paper or a file that I had to find to get it done because I didn't know where it was. I didn't know how to how I had categorized it or filed it away. And so being more organized helps you do more and then you can handle more. You don't have to spend the brain space thinking, okay, where did I put that? Or what did I do for that? So easy ways to become more organized. Uh, you could use a calendar. Shocking. You know, I, I use everything on my digital calendar now, but a lot of people use paper calendars. That's fine. Use a notebook, um, use a you know smartphone, computer. All those things are accessible now. And you know, just become organized, write things down, uh, writing things down becomes, you know, I mean, on a secular side of things, you know, I have read quite a few books in the business world as well. Cause that that's a side interest of mine. That's where I got my undergraduate degree. But one of the things that a lot of the business, uh, tycoons, um, have shown is that people who write down their goals, um, you know, become much more likely to achieve them. Right. And so I'm not, teaching the power of positive thinking or whatever, there's some magic in doing that. It's more of an organizational principle is that if you know what you're trying to achieve and it's there for you, you're going to achieve it. And it also helps you remember things. I have a terrible memory. And so writing things down really helps me. And so I try to write people's names down because I forget them a lot. Uh, And if I don't write them down, I often do forget. So it's just write things down. It helps you be organized. Uh, number four, beware of entertainment, right? Beware of entertainment. And the culture lives and breathes the idea that you are to entertain yourself, right? Whether it's social media, whether it's television, Netflix. You think about all the different things, television, Netflix, uh, any any of the streaming services, they are all based on the idea that you are trying to entertain yourself. The algorithms the the data it's all trying to say okay what is going to make him most entertained or her most entertained to keep her here longer right and a lot of times we rationalize even ourselves the need for entertainment i i know a lot of times we think oh i've worked so hard i deserve a little break for myself right so i'm going to watch youtube or i'm going to watch watch a show or i'm going to do these things and then we lose focus and we entertainment ends up being what we're actually working for. In fact, even prior to all of the newer temptations of social media and computers and all that, you know, you had songs such as I'm working for the weekend, right? Well, that's a terrible theological concept because as a Christian, we work because God created work. Shocking, I know. But God created work as good. So we're not working just to so we can play. Work is a part of good fulfillment. And so people should take uh, great enjoyment in their work, not just because they're doing something that's enjoyable, but because they are operating the way God created them to function. 
right? And that's a really important principle. And so it's not just about entertaining ourselves. In fact, we should try as much as possible to seek to take pleasure out of hard work and not just try to seek entertainment, the casual, you know, it's kind of like, I, I think it's been well illustrated that, you know, you, you can have the good steak that is just delicious and, and filling and, and it gives so much good to your body, or you can eat the candy and it tastes good and it gives you this little sugar high, but then you crash. And that's kind of the idea of entertainment versus fulfillment. Fulfillment can be very pleasing and very satisfying. But if you're just always eating candy and, and digesting that, you're just going to, it's going to be a disaster. And so you need to be aware of entertainment, be aware of what, what you do to seek entertainment, what you, how you reward yourself, you know, how much better if you rewarded yourself with reading a book, listening to music, listening to podcasts or something like that. Those are, those are good things. So, uh, the temptation is to, is to let entertainment rule you but you must rule entertainment. It's very bad to be mindless, do profitable things. That's number four. Number five, speak truthfully. So, man, I tell you what, uh, it's very rare that people will mean what they say now. It's very rare that people will mean what they say. And the believer needs to be disciplined and speak the truth and be known for speaking the truth. Okay, this is something that uh, needs to be a priority. It, it it shows up as direct commands to speak the truth, but it's also just an outflow of being disciplined. Uh, in David's description, when David talks about what it looks like for a, a believer to be faithful and holy before the Lord in Psalm 15, verse 4, if I remember right, he talks about how a man will often promise, like a man will promise to his own hurt and does not change. And that that principle means that if you promise something, if you say something, even if it's going to work out poorly for you to follow through with that, you still do that because you had promised or indebted yourself to do that. And this is, this is a discipline for believers is that if we say something, we, our word is our bond, Right. And let me give you one of the most common illustrations where this takes place, and that's in praying, right? Because a lot of times we'll say, oh, I'll pray for your brother, or I'll pray for your sister, and then we see them next week, and we're like, oh, yeah, I forgot to pray for you. Lord, please help them in whatever situation. Yeah, well, okay, you blew it. And maybe it would help if you actually wrote it down, right? So fulfill your promises as well. If you promise saying, I will be there, or if you say, let's go out for lunch sometime, do that. I, I actually had a brother at one time who, who mentioned he was going to do something for me. And a couple of weeks went by. I didn't actually ever expect him to, because I was like, oh, people say that all the time. And I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. And that's fine. I love the brother and not so what? Well, a couple of weeks later, he's like, okay, let's do it tomorrow. I'm like, whoa. You, wait, you were serious about that? And he's like, yeah, of course. Like, we got to do it now because it's going to get harder to do it. And I just, I appreciated his honesty and his desire to do what he said that he was going to do. And I think that really needs to be the mark of believers. Uh, number six, this kind of goes along with that, is is to be on time. Be on time. And and basically, this is just an element of controlling your own life and controlling circumstances or, around you. 
that's very important, but it's also a part of being truthful, right? If you say you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, you better be there at that time. Now, of course, I know that there are exceptions to that, but they ought to be true exceptions instead of the rule. People should not say, oh yeah, he's normally five minutes late or, oh yeah, he's normally 10 minutes late. No, you know, in fact, when you show up, so, so it's just an effort of discipline, but even beyond that, it's actually a application of love too. Some people don't realize this, but showing up late is telling people that they're not that important. So that you're telling people when you show up late that I'm more important than you, you're not, you're not as important me, as me. I have more important things to do than to meet with you, right? And if you show up five minutes late to a meeting with like five people, you've just wasted 25 minutes as well. And you said, all of you are not as that, you, you are not very important to me, right? I actually remember hearing a story about an individual who was discipled by uh, a fairly well-known individual and, and they were talking after having you know, met for a couple months and just talking about things. And the guy said, well, how do you think it's going so far? And the person who was being discipled said, well, I just have to tell you, I do not feel loved by you at all because you show up late to every single one of our meetings. I don't feel like I'm a priority at all. And oh man, that would be, that's, that's the gut, gut punch, right? And so being on time is so crucial. Uh, being on time tells people that they're important. It also shows that you are disciplined, able to manage everything else that's going on in your life, and you're able to be a man and woman of integrity. I think these are these are very important things, especially showing up to church. You know, a lot of people won't show up to work late because they'll get fired, but they show up to late. They show up late to church because it doesn't really matter to them. And so be disciplined to demonstrate what is important to you. Number seven, seize small units of time. Seize small units of time. Now, Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, I would say, especially in our day and age, social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, Snapchat, whatever else the kids are doing these days, you know, people waste time all the time. They say, oh, I only have five minutes, so I'm just going to go on social media. Oh, I only have 10 minutes, so I'm going to go on social media. Well, think about how many five to 15 minute chunks are wasted every single day, right? And I, I'm as guilty as anybody, right? I, I have multiple times had to remove uh, Facebook or Twitter from my phone just because that's the first app I will click when I when I have some free time, if, if I have just a few minutes, I'm waiting for somebody. Oh yeah, I might as well click on that. Well, guess what? When I delete it, I have to do something else. And usually I do something a lot more productive. Uh, you know, it was funny. I was telling somebody, I, I deleted one of the social media apps from my phone and I went to click on it and I was like, oh, I don't know what to click now. And so I like clicked my Bible. And I was like, well, I might as well read my Bible. It's like, as if that was second best, you know? Okay, come on. So the point is, Seize small units of time. Just prioritize those. Know what you can actually accomplish. Know what you can actually accomplish periodically by just working in small chunks like that. You know, you can actually pray for five minutes. You can meditate on scripture. You can memorize scripture. You can clean. You can write a thank you note. And that that's the all these things kind of work together is that you can seize small units of time effectively 
if you know what you're supposed to be working towards. So if you always have something on your mind, you're writing it down saying, oh, I need to be working on this. Oh, I have five minutes. I can work on this here. Well, that's, that's really important. A uh, Christian is to be responsible for the use of their time, understanding that the days are evil. So redeeming the time is very important. Number eight, do the most difficult task first. Okay. Procrastination is the killer of many well-meaning Christians. Many a Christian has these great grandiose plans and they're going to start tomorrow, right? It's, it's really good practice to do the most difficult task of the day first, uh, unless there's a specific reason not to. And, and I can think of other reasons that why that might be. Let's say you have a half hour time slot, but what you need, the most difficult task is going to take an hour. Well, maybe you knock out second or third most difficult just to fit that slot well or something. Okay, I understand that. But a lot of people have bad habits of always doing easy things first, and then they just don't have the mental capacity to actually work hard or, or the mental longevity to work hard on the things that they need to. It's a necessary discipline to prioritize and understand what you need to do and then to follow through and do it. Okay. And so do the most difficult task first, unless there's a good reason not to do that. All right. Number nine, work until a task is completed. Work until a task is completed. So what we need to do as Christians is develop a discipline of working hard all the way through to completion. And I remember my parents trying to really implement this in my life because I was always, you know, ready to go on and do other things. But when you start doing something, when you're going to work, you work, you see it through, you try to work till it's done. There's a time for breaks, but they should be a part of the planned process, not just, oh, I feel like taking a break now. No, you should, you should plan even those breaks. You know, there was, again, using my own life as a negative example, there were a lot of times where I would be writing something and I would write a paragraph and then I would say, oh, you know, what? it's time to go on Facebook because I finished a paragraph, you know, whatever. No, you have a little more mental longevity than being able to just complete a paragraph. Okay. So there's a time for breaks, but work as much as possible. Train yourself to work and see something through to the end. And I think that just in general, loyalty might be loyalty and uh, longevity um, working something all the way through till it's done, that, that might be something worth talking about in general anyway, because those are, those are good Christian habits to be, to be working through and to be implementing. And I think that that's something that we often uh, really minimize, and especially our culture, those kinds of things are gone now. Uh, but that's why Christians stand out all the more, because a Christian who's implementing these kinds of ideals, who says, no, I'm going to work till this is done. Uh, I'm going to be here. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm loyal to the project or I'm, I'm working hard for this. That stands out. And uh, as what a great opportunity to share the good news of the gospel in doing that. Number 10, accept correction with meekness. Now, I do think this is an element of self-control and self-discipline. And some people would be thinking, well, how, how could that be? Uh, well, listen, when you are confronted over something, accepting correction, when you're confronted over something, somebody says, hey, you know what, I, I don't know if you know this, but you're a terrible person. And then they start to confront you. Well, 
it takes a lot of self-control to accept any kind of rebuke and not just immediately lash out. And unfortunately, a lot of people do. But I'm just telling you, work at being disciplined to, to not respond that way, to, to give yourself a break. In fact, I think it should be just common practice that if ever, if ever you receive rebuke, to not immediately defend yourself, but to take time and think and pray about it, right? And the wise man understands that rebuke is actually a source of wisdom, right? Proverbs is all about that. Rebuke, correction, those are ways that God teaches us. And so we need to understand that this is a good thing. We shouldn't, we shouldn't shun it. We shouldn't flee from it. We should actually accept it, practice it, and, and work hard at that, right? So self-discipline the, the, an element of self-discipline is actually disciplining yourself to accept correction and to be thankful for it, to profit from it. Number 11, practice self-denial. Now, this practice is often mocked by people who don't really care for self-discipline. They, they'll see somebody who, who denies themselves something. Maybe they'll see somebody who denies themselves an extra chocolate chip uh, cookie or who says, no, thank you to dessert. And they'll say, oh, you know, you're so... You must be gluten-free or something like that. No, but there's actually tremendous benefit to simply, and it could be even periodically, denying yourself legitimate pleasures, right? And I'm not promoting any kind of asceticism where you just, you know, are doing it for the sake of inflicting pain on yourself or anything like that, right? But the to actually practice self-denial where you have a legitimate option to accept something or to be gratified by something but you say no in order to just practice saying no. A lot of people just don't have the capacity anymore to say no to their flesh, right? And so that's something that you should practice. You should. It's just something that you should practice. It's like somebody who runs a mile. You don't have to run a mile. You could walk the mile. You could get in a car and drive the mile, but you run the mile to practice so that your body is in better shape. Well, so too your your volitional willpower, the way that we function and uh, exercise control over our emotions and desires, that's something that we can train, right? And so practicing self-denial is important. So that could be uh, denying yourself. You know, it, you could be looking forward to watching something on TV, watching uh, something on Netflix. You could be looking forward to a, a special dessert and just saying, you know what? I'm going to wait till tomorrow to have that. Because I can, and I'm going to practice that. And I think that that's something that can be very helpful in just practicing self-discipline, practicing denial, practicing that control over the flesh. I think that's, that's really good. Number 12, wake up. Now, I think this is a great way of practicing self-discipline and just practically growing in it. Sleep should be viewed as a means to attain a goal, not a goal in and of itself. So... When we sleep, we should view that as a means to an end, not an end in and of itself, in other words. And a lot of people live for sleep, perhaps, especially teenagers will often fall into that category, but not all of them. And I would say this is something that we ought to really, really, as Christians, uh, understand that we discipline ourselves to wake up, right? It's if we've, if we've achieved the amount of sleep that, that we need, you know, and people need different amounts, but if you get your seven and a half, eight, nine hours, 
I don't think anyone really needs like 12 or 13 hours, but I guess I'm open to debate that point. Uh, if you get your amount of sleep, you know, don't, don't treat sleep as if it were the ultimate goal, right? You get your sleep, you get your sleep that is necessary to function the best for Christ. And then you, you live your life, right? And, and part of that, if you're going to wake up at the right time, if you're going to be responsible at waking up, then you need to go to bed, right? So I always have told people, I say always, uh, I tell people now at least that um, your wake-up time is dictated by your bedtime. And I think that's just so crucial. That's something that, that you learn very quickly if you're trying to wake up at some point is it's, it's harder to get up in the morning if you didn't go to bed at the right time. And that's just a basic principle of life, but it's, it's part of understanding how that works. Oswald Sanders from his book, Spiritual Leadership, had a, had a really fascinating quote that I remember when I read it the first time, I was thinking, wow, this is just so convicting and so helpful. And he said, the young man of leadership caliber will work while others waste time. He'll study while others snooze and pray while others daydream. I just think that's so profound because it really just does talk about the different priorities is that those who are pursuing Christ, who, who long to serve him and to, to lead uh, his people well, that can be men or women, they, they don't waste time. You know, they study, they pray. I mean, yeah, praise the Lord for Christians who, who will pray, uh, you know, hours in the day for their fellow brothers and sisters. It's, it's a huge blessing. Uh, last one, number 13, welcome responsibility. Welcome responsibility. So volunteer would be, would be helpful here. Th- this helps inspire discipline and organization because as you're trying to figure out how to do more, you're kind of forced to do more. Uh, and, and it helps you prioritize things because if you say, hey, I'm going to help you move or I'm going to help uh, volunteer to teach you know, the, the second graders, well, now you have to organize your life in order to make that happen, right? And so it stretches you a little bit. And the disciplined Christian, the one who's self-controlled, organized, is able to offer his assistance to others who need it. And it's, it's really kind of ironic that it's usually the busiest people who are the most dependable or who are the ones who have time to give to others. You know, it's funny, I, and sad, it's so sad too. Please, if you're watching this or listening to this, do not be this person. I beg you. But I think in reality, we, we all are fighting against this is so many times I'll, I'll see people who say they are so busy. They'll complain, they'll complain, they'll complain. And I find out they're playing like three hours a day of video games or whatever, stuff like that. Right. And you say, okay, you're not that busy. And that's the sad reality though, is that a lot of times the people who are too busy to help in the needs of the church are the ones who are actually just wasting time and not disciplined Christians. And listen, but I know there are really busy people. Okay. I know that people who are filling their times with good things, but it's just a fact of the matter. Uh, and it's, it's a reality of the Christian life that those people who are busiest are the ones who the, the church can count on the most because they're, they're used to, and they're disciplining their lives, uh, for the purpose of godliness and helping others. And they prioritize those things. So if it came down to catching, you know, the latest Netflix episode or being there for their brother or sister, guess what they're going to choose? They're going to be there. 
So welcome responsibility, volunteer for things, try things out. Um, I'm so I'm so pleased even at the church that we're at uh, in the young adult group. I'm just so thankful that I get to see young men and women who who say, you know what, I have time. I'm going to accept accept some responsibility. So I'm going to volunteer in the children's ministry, or I'm going to do other things. That's just so cool to see, and I think that that's that's what we ought to do. We ought to really be prioritizing these these definitions of responsibility and say, you know what, I can prioritize these uh, sacrificial self-denial aspects of life where I can serve others, right? That's that's the Christian life. So when we think about it, uh, these 13 you know, elements or these 13 principles which can help you grow in self-discipline, they're not rocket science. In fact, there, very few of these would be things that you would say, oh, wow, that was so profound. Now, I think most of you would say, you know what, these are very basic. But that's the point is that the Christian life is not mystical or glamorous. It's the life of a soldier, the life of an athlete, the life of a farmer. And I think of one, one particular individual who made a big impact on my life, actually through Alex Strzok, because Alex Strzok introduced him to me um, by writing uh, is R.C. Chapman. Chapman is long gone. So it's, I talk like I have a personal relationship with him, but he lived during the time of Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon actually said he was the saintliest man he ever knew, by the way. So R.C. Chapman had a, had a very godly reputation, but we don't know a lot about him. And part of the reason for that is because he tried to burn every like record of his life right before he died. <laughs> so that's cool. He's, he's a pretty humble guy. But uh, R.C. Chapman, one of the things that we do know about him was he preached a sermon early in life. And, uh, and he, yeah, he said he got some really bad feedback. You know, people said, yeah, you're not a preacher. And so he said, you know what? That may be true. Maybe I'm not going to be uh, an amazing preacher, but uh, I can at least try to live Christ to the best of my ability. And that's what I'll try to be known for is to live Christ. And so that, that became his goal. He said, you know what? I'm going to discipline myself. There are many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. That's what he said. And so he made it his goal. And, and he really admonished all, all Christians to follow that, that line. I mean, what, what benefit is it if you have you know, millions of social media followers and you don't live the basic reality of a self-disciplined, self-controlled life that is, that is submitted completely to Christ. What benefit is that? I don't see any benefit. I see danger all over, and we see that a lot in the Christian social media sphere. But Christian character is so crucial for the believer, and discipline is a big, big part of that. It's a core, a core component for the Christian life. So I hope I've convinced you of that and perhaps helped guide your thoughts on how you might want to prioritize that this year if the Lord wills. Hope it's helpful for you. If you want more information about me, you can visit petergaming.com to see some of the articles that I've written or find out more about the, the blog or the podcast. If you want more information about Shepherd's Theological Seminary, where I teach, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.